Hello and welcome to the Thinking LSAT podcast. This is episode 79. I am Ben Olson in Washington, D.C., and with me is Nathan Fox in Los Angeles, right? I am in Los Angeles. Yeah, how you doing? Good. I'm doing great. Uh, so you said you saw Rogue One and you loved it so much that you saw it again? I have seen Rogue One twice already, and it is amazing. Um, episode 7, I think you and I agreed, was eh, a little mediocre. I mean, it was fine. It was a new Star Wars movie, but it was a little sort of obvious and just you know not that surprising or anything yeah well it kind of rehashed uh oh, yeah. the same storyline right we, so. which we've talked about we, people don't need to probably hear us <laughs> complain about that again but it was kind of a silly yeah ripoff of of episode four but this rogue one is a completely new movie uh it is set in the time right before episode four it's about uh well, I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but it's long been known that this movie is about how the Rebels stole the plans for the Death Star. And okay. it is just, it's really, really good. It's a little shade darker than a lot of the Star Wars movies. Mm-hmm. Um, but in that way, it's like Empire Strikes Back, which was, you know, the best of all of the original Star Wars movies. So yeah. Yeah. this one's way up there in, uh, in my favorite Star Wars movies, and it's really great to have like a whole new set of characters, and um, you know, a, just a pretty solid, action-packed movie. People uh, were cheering in the theater that I was in, so they were cheering. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what at the end, or like at random points through the uh, movie? Definitely in the beginning, when the you know, just the the title screen of A Force Awakens, and. Uh, definitely cheering at the end the the last 45 minutes or so are super action-packed and uh, kind of amazingly tie into the beginning of the very beginning of the star wars movies okay yeah so yeah i don't know i don't want to say too much you're are you do you have plans to take the boys you gonna do it yeah i was i was hoping to do it uh right after you told me actually on sunday but uh just things got busy and um we ended up uh, getting a dog, so oh, wow. that's kind of, yeah, uh, that's a new endeavor, but we'll, we'll fit in there soon enough. I'm, I'm excited now. You know, sometimes you get excited about movies, you see the trailer, and it looks really awesome, and then it comes out, and people are like, meh, you know. Yeah. <laughs> the, the trailer is more interesting than the actual movie. Uh, but I'm glad to hear that this one was a success. So yeah, really, uh, really can't recommend it. If you're, a, if uh, I can't recommend it any more highly. If you're a Star Wars fan, um, yeah, I think you're gonna love it. I think the boys will love it too. Yeah, cool. Cool. Uh, what kind of dog do you get? A oh, shoot. I wish I a, a mountain Swissy dog. I'm not. So sure. you're super into know. it, is what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, I'm not a big. Uh, pet fan but we actually do have a lot of pets because uh the kids like pets and my wife likes pets so we have rabbits fish and chickens uh but you know they know that i'm not really responsible for them so i just kind of see them and then move on i mean they're, they're great they're, they're nice looking animals but i don't really i don't have a, i'm not a big fan of taking care of animals so nor am I. I mean, yeah, I'm not into really kids or pets. 
I figure once you have kids, you <laughs> might as well just have pets, right? You're already like domesticated and just going to be around the house taking care of things. So that's, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, thankfully with the pets, I've kind of drawn a line that people seem to respect. So that you're, that you're not the one who's taking care of them. Yeah. That's a good, that's right. Yeah. If they need food, it's sort of like, okay, well, um, I don't even know like where the food is. I wouldn't even <laughs> that know. That is awesome. <laughs> so the dog would potentially die if it was left up to you. Yeah, that was one concern I had about getting a dog. Is that I mean, as some you know, a dog more than chickens and uh, definitely more than fish. Uh, if something happens, I think there's going to be a lot more anguish. So I think I would feel compelled to act in certain situations where people are gone and haven't taken care of their responsibilities. So I'm a little hesitant about that, but yeah, when push comes to shove, I'm not going to let the dog die. Jeez. So <laughs> I'll do something. I'll provide water, whatever is, is absolutely necessary. So yeah, that's, you're a good guy, Ben. That's great. <laughs> Thanks. What do we have on the show today? Yeah. Yeah. We have a lot of good stuff. We have, um, the email from Alec that we started last time, uh, he had some good questions on games and, and LR that we can uh, dive into. Okay. We have a question about writing a white lie in, a, in an addendum. Uh, that will be interesting. And then, of course, we'll jump into some logical reasoning questions from the June 2007 LSAT. And uh, just a quick reminder, we do have a subscribe page that you can now sign up and get updates every time. We create one of these lovely episodes for you. Uh, it's at thinkinglsat.com forward slash blog forward slash subscribe. Uh, Andy, who writes our show notes, will give you a awesome synopsis of what we're going to talk about. Um, like many trailers, that might be better than the actual thing. <laughs> but <laughs> No question. Uh, In this case, no question. Those show notes are better <laughs> than the show itself. Yeah, sometimes we record the show and then I read what she wrote about it. I go, wow, that sounds like a really interesting episode. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, yeah, you can get those emails and just, uh, you know, be the first of your friends to listen to this here uh, podcast. So in any case, let's jump into Alex's questions on the games. A quick recap. Last time he was telling us that he tends to get... Zero to three wrong in games, zero to three wrong in logical reasoning, and three to eight wrong in reading comprehension. And we talked about reading comprehension primarily because that was his most challenging section, it, it looks like. But <clears throat> he did have some questions about the games. Uh, in particular, he took the December LSAT. And, or, yeah, wait, what? Yeah, the December LSAT. Jeez, time is flying fast. Yep. For some reason, I thought it was the September LSAT. But he took the December LSAT. And he ended up, as he put it, he got floored by the third game, uh, which was the painting game, apparently. And he didn't know how to make inferences. Uh, this ended up causing him to cancel his score, um, which he's not sure if he would have done otherwise. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, don't cancel your score. Like, almost ever. I, I, I understand you did not get the highest you could have gotten, but that does not mean you should cancel your score because law schools are really only looking at your highest score. And for all the reasons that we've said a million times, do not cancel your score. I think most cancellations probably stem from some game that went bad. I think that, that people give a lot of weight to a game that didn't go well. But it's kind of interesting because the games only have five, six, sometimes seven questions. 
So they're really not a very big part of the test. No, it's already, right, it's only a quarter of the test to begin with, and then there's four games. So you're talking about any one game is one sixteenth of your score. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Well, there's obviously some bad mental mojo going on here anyway, right? Because what's what's he say next? Now he says even kind of weirder things. So it did not help me that I committed a cardinal sin by assuming that this was the experimental section after breezing through the prior logical game section. It's good that he knows that's a cardinal sin, if there are any, uh, when it comes to the LSAT. And uh, regardless, I was soundly beaten by this game, and the buildings game, which came after it, wasn't exactly a walk in the park either. Yeah, I just, I have to, I'm you got to stop thinking about which section is the experimental section and which section is not. And you got to stop thinking that you can tell which section is experimental and which is not. It's, yeah. it's so it's weird here, right? Cause it's like people just assume that if it's hard, it's the experimental section or they assume that if mm-hmm. it's different, it's the experimental section, but yeah, future games all appear as experimental games before they appear on the real test. Yep. So the experimental section is going to look exactly like an actual section. So yeah. you can't tell. Furthermore, you have 35 minutes to sit here and work on this section. And using some of that 35 minutes to think about whether this is the experimental section or not, it's not. there is no value. It does not provide you any value. There's zero utility in this line of thinking. So instead, I think you just got to let go of the whole experimental thing and just decide that the test has five sections and just pretend as if all five of them are scored. Yeah, I wonder if it's the title. We keep calling it the experimental section, huh? Maybe we should start calling it the variable section. Well, I was thinking about that. That's what the uh, that's what LSAC calls it officially, the variable section. But even that sounds a little bit like something about it will be different, right? Right. Maybe it's just the extra. Section. It's just an extra section yeah. of whatever you like. Yeah. Well, you don't get to choose, but it's an extra section, and you just got to do it like every other section. It's just a section. That's all it is. Yeah, it's just another 35-minute section. And, you know, if you are prepared for the LSAT, you have already done dozens or hundreds of these 35-minute sections. And Mm -hmm. so on the day, there's going to be five of them. And it's, you know, for sure one games, two logical reasoning, and one reading comprehension. And then there's going to be one more section of any of those three types. And... Four out of five of those sections are going to count, and you don't know which one doesn't count. So do your best on all of them, and don't let that be any part of your analysis. Yeah. He continues, I'm getting the LG Bible, the Logic Games Bible, to broaden my understanding of the game section as well as experimenting with the Cambridge LSAT games that throw some twists in. Do you know what he's talking about there? uh, Yeah, so on Cambridge LSAT, Dot com. There are some free games that people have posted. They were written by some folks at Manhattan LSAT, I think, or some other random people. But basically, they're made-up games uh, that are uh, pretty challenging, actually, at least uh, the two or three that I've seen. Would you ever recommend anybody do this? 
I would only recommend this if you have exhausted everything else that's out there. And by exhausted, you mean? So there are at least 80 official LSATs that have been released. Um, there's actually a few more because of tests A, B, and C, and then what some people are calling C2, I think. And there's actually a D out there. And LSAC India, right? Or LSAT India. And LSAC India. Yeah, that's right. So there's a lot of games out there. And if you're looking for unusual games, you can find official games from older tests, especially the tests uh, from 29 to 38, which are... I can't remember the name of that book, but it's it's a book of ten, and those books are those tests are pretty hard, and it's got some unusual games in there. And if you go even older, you can find some weird games. So if you're looking for something to sort of give you a run for your money because you haven't seen it before, I think you can just go to older games. Uh, that said, some people have done that, and I would say fine, check those out. They are uh, pretty challenging. Yeah, so I just I can't imagine recommending this to more than like one out of a hundred students, I think. I mean, sure. Because you have to be doing really well in the games anyway, because they are going to make you a little depressed, I think. And you're going to think that this is somehow reflective of reality, which it's not. Yeah. And I think you should have done all of the 80 plus official games or 80 plus tests worth of, so 320 official mm-hmm. games, right? You mm-hmm. should have done all of those official games probably multiple times. Yeah. Because if you just do them once, it's unless you have some crazy photographic memory or something, you know, you do them once, you're not going to just remember and you're not going to be able to just breeze through them when you come back through the second time of redoing, you know, 300 games. Yeah. And if you haven't done all of the official games more than once, I, I can't imagine I would ever recommend people going and doing these fake games. Mm-hmm. It just seems like an inefficient waste of time. Yeah, in general, I would agree okay. with that. I think there's a couple people who might. Yeah, right. It, That's, um, it's a, a very rare student who already has done all of that work. Yeah. Okay, cool. And so he says he's going to get the Logic Games Bible to broaden his understanding of the game section. I don't think that will hurt necessarily. The only issue I take with the Logic Games Bible is I feel like it tends to break the games down more than I'm even concerned enough to yeah figure out so i haven't broken it down that much but you would know it better than i did because i think you taught from this yeah i mean when i was a power score teacher at the very beginning of my career um we had the games bible and yeah it's fundamentally sound um i think it's maybe showing its age a little bit because of you know the way they make those kind of heavy-handed not inferences on all the sequencing Mm. games they they really focus on that and that seems mm-hmm. a little clunky. Um, it's also just like almost all of the, the the books that are out there have, you know, heavy, heavy on semantics. And mm-hmm. I think what you're you're talking about how they they break the games types down into like, you know, you got your grouping games where it's overfunded or underfunded or mm-hmm. yep. whatever, mm-hmm. and they you know they've got all these like titles with capital letters and sometimes with trademarks on them and stuff and it <laughs> and it's like none of those words are ever going to appear on the actual LSAT and they're, they're not going to announce to you that this game is overfunded or underfunded or I don't even know that they're even thinking in those terms so yeah. I, I feel like the risk is from all of this over what do you call it like 
over compartment yeah like categorization yeah or over, something, i was or? gonna say something with taxonomy or something but yeah this, yeah this over labeling and and thinking that there are these existing you know the like thinking that the types even really exist right mm-hmm. like i don't mm-hmm. think the people at the lsac are sitting there going well we need one pure sequencing game and we need one multi-level sequencing game and we need one grouping game that's an in-out game you know like an in-out game that's not even a thing mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. A, a tool that you can use to solve some games yeah and i think people maybe get misguided because they start thinking like oh all i have to do is figure out what type of game this is and then i'll know exactly what the setup should be mm-hmm. and instead they need to be thinking about having a portfolio uh, or a a toolbox, right? And they need to have these little tools that they can use to tinker with and figure out a solution for any any game. Yeah. Because we see sections where it'll be like all the games are are sequencing sometimes mm-hmm. or we'll or you know or, or 3 out of 4 or we'll see other sections where 3 out of 4 of them are grouping games. Yeah. Or we'll see sections where all of the games are kind of hybrid or kind of different or kind of unique, you know? So that's where I get worried with, with people like really studying the, the formalities and the theory of games. Yeah. Instead of just yeah. practicing a shit ton of the real games. Yeah. Okay. No, I couldn't agree more. Now, <clears throat> I know it's a little self-serving, but we both have books that deal with games, right? Um, What's your book called again? Yeah, my book is called the Fox LSAT Logic Games Playbook. Uh, mm-hmm. It's available on Amazon. Yep. And yours? Uh, mine is the Logic Games Demon, and uh, it's not on Amazon, but you can email me and I'll send you the book as well as uh, the videos that go along with it. Awesome. The Logic Games Demon. Yeah. So I took the name from, uh, shoot, actually, I don't even remember the guy now. Hold on, I have it here in my title. I was listening to some physics book when I, when I wrote this thing. Oh, yeah, Laplace. Have you ever heard of Laplace's demon? No. Okay, so Laplace was this guy who basically said that if you could know every atom, like the precise location and movement of every atom in the universe – you could use the laws of physics to basically figure out where they came from and where they will eventually go. Because he thought, you know, we knew if we know all the laws and we know every little detail about the universe, you can just predict, oh, this will bump into that atom, which will then make that atom go there and blah, 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 blah. Anyways, this has since been sort of um, rejected. But in any case, people called uh, this thing that would know the location of all these atoms as his demon. So, or I think he might've called it a demon or so. I don't know. But anyways, the idea was something that could be all knowing and know the place of everything. And I was like, that's kind of cool. And then I was thinking about the the logic games, Bibles and the logical reasoning Bibles. And I was like, we just need something that counteracts the Bibles. So we need a demon. (laughs) (laughs) uh i like you more and more every day ben that's uh, speaking my language (laughs) so yeah it's the logic games demon excellent and they just email you ben at strategy prep if they want to get more on that yep yeah so uh 
Do we have anything else for him to, when it comes to games? Um, no, I think that's uh, plenty about the game. You know, I, I would just encourage him to do real LSAT games and watch uh, video, I think, is a really good way to learn logic games, right? I mean, so my mm -hmm. online class, your online class, uh, those are very solid resources for uh, seeing solutions to real, actual games. Um, mm -hmm. The one, you know, tip that I might keep in mind when you watch those videos, either, you know, your videos, Ben, or my videos, or anybody else's videos, just remember that you're not looking at the only solution for the game. Yeah. That there are mm -hmm. multiple ways to do this. And I try to remember to say it all the time in class, you know, but it's like what I'm doing here is I'm not giving you a scripted, like, perfect solution for the game. Instead, I'm giving you hey, here's how I see this game right now in this moment. Like this is, these are the connections that I would be able to make today right now. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, sometimes the kids will be like, well, but what I did this way and it totally worked. And they, they, they think that that somehow, you know, debunks my solution. Mm -hmm. And I'm always mm -hmm. happy to look at their solution. And frequently I look at it and I go, oh yeah, so totally. Oh yeah, I didn't even see that possible solution. Yeah, you know, maybe this is better than what I did. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. you got to be open to uh, kind of improvisation on the games. Well, I think that's a really good point because I think sometimes people jump into the games or a game, maybe like this third game that Alec was doing, and if you don't feel like you're setting it up, quote, correctly, then you can kind of lose faith right? <laughs> and stop going forward. Where if you realize, hey, look, there's several different ways to solve this. You just have to solve it. Right maybe that's enough to get you to keep going right. and that's what really makes you solve it. Yeah, that's why this over the over taxonomy or the over semanticizing of the whole thing it, it does people a pretty big disservice I think because then they do exactly what you're talking about. And this has happened on what every recent test, right? Every recent test mm -hmm. it's it seems like has at least one curveball. Yeah. And people see that curveball and they just freeze up and don't do anything and then now they're just mm -hmm. done. Mm -hmm. And that to me indicates that you haven't seen enough, you haven't done enough timed 35 minute sections. Because if you had done all of the, you know, let's say, what, everything from prep test 60 onward or something like that, mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. 20 tests, so 20 different 35 minute sections. And you would have been, you, you better start getting tuned into that curveball at some point. Because it's on yeah. every test. I mean, there's just, these games, we don't know exactly what's coming. I mean, we know what's mm -hmm. coming on a lot of them. Mm -hmm. and, but the, the real skill is learning to just see this strange situation. On September, it was the virus game. Mm -hmm. But that game, if you, if you just take a deep breath, wasn't hard. And so, you know, Alec here is saying, I was floored by this paintings game, mm -hmm. but I, you know, I, I'm expecting, and I think you're probably expecting as well, that as soon as this test comes out, you're going to look at that game and you're going to go, Oh, interesting. Yeah, I see. Okay. But it's going to turn out to be pretty easy. Yeah. You know, and you got to get over that hump where you got to go into it knowing that there is going to be some kind of twist Mm -hmm. And you just kind of mm -hmm. have to hang in there and figure it out, right? All the information that's necessary to solve it is right there on the page. 
Yeah. You just have to understand each condition and then think about the ways that those conditions interact. And then you'll start to make some connections and those connections are inferences. Mm -hmm. That's, yep. that's it. <laughs> that's, that's the game. You know, people think like, cause that inferences thing, right? He, he even says it here in his email. I had mm -hmm. no idea how to make the inferences. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, I'll tell you how to make the inferences. You look at the rules in context of one another. That's right. It's just a combination of rules. That's an, Usually yeah. just two of them. Yeah, that's an inference. An inference is something that you know for sure based on combining two or more of the rules together. That's an inference. And then that inference itself becomes another new rule, right? That's a new, con that, because that condition has emerged for you. It's like, oh, I see when I combine these two rules together, then that means that, you know, whatever, X can't go third. Mm -hmm. Well, now X can't go third, you can just consider that to be a rule of the game. Mm -hmm. Now think about X can't go third in the context of the other rules of the game. And then they start to just sort of pile up, right? Little 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 tiny baby steps or breadcrumbs yeah. or whatever. Mm -hmm. That's all inferences is. It's not like a magical, mystical, you know, or applying some secret formula. Yep. Cool. I don't have anything to add. Okay, <laughs> good. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing that paintings game, though. I like the little, the little silly curveballs that they try to throw us. Yeah, yeah, it would be good to see. Uh, interesting to see what they've they've brought, you know, thought of. Yeah. Uh, whoever writes these games must must be having fun. They're like, oh, let me think of something that's never been done before, and do it. Yeah, I gotta give them some props. Actually, I mean, I thought the virus game was an interesting, sort of tiny little plot twist. Yeah, it's like, oh, yeah, you guys sure. have been practicing putting things in order. Okay, what if you have to put things in order except for? two things can go simultaneously whenever they want. Yeah. You know, and think about that for a minute. So, yeah. Anyway, the painting, the dreaded paintings game. <laughs> uh, for logical reasoning, Alex says, this is easily my best section, and I'm not worried about missing more than a handful of these between the two sections, but I do struggle mightily with parallel questions yet, particularly when stressed for time. Usually not an issue. I've yet to find a consistent diagramming technique, either via the internet or constructing a model myself. Anything to add here? Well, when I read this right away, I was like, um, it sounds like Alec is trying to diagram all of these. Now, I don't know if that's actually true. He doesn't necessarily say that, but the tone of this makes it suggest that he thinks diagramming is like the key. And I feel like diagramming is the key only for a small subset of these and only when necessary. Yeah, exactly. Um, people do, I don't know what it is out there, but people think that they're supposed to diagram. I very rarely diagram anything on the logical reasoning. Yeah, I would say maybe one or two questions per section, sometimes none. Mostly for me, none, maybe one, or two, and only if I have to in order to make sense of the argument itself, and it has nothing to do with the question type. So 
I do not diagram more often on parallel reasoning questions than I diagram on any other type of question. I'm, I'm diagramming when I feel like there are conditional premises, that is, you know, if-then statements, or only yeah. if, or whatever, but conditional statements that link together, but I can't, like I'm having trouble piecing it together in my head. Yeah. Then I might make a diagram in order to, in order to make sense of that argument. Yeah, I would, I would add a little, I don't know if this is constraining a little bit more than what you're saying, but I would say that although it doesn't have to do with the question type, I do feel like there is a trend, and that is that if I'm going to diagram at all, then it's probably going to be a must-be-true question, a sufficient assumption question, or a parallel reasoning question. But that doesn't mean that if it's that question type, you're going to diagram. It's the other way around. It's like if you're going right. to diagram, then it's probably one of those three. For all the other types, I am, I, you, there might be a situation where you, you draw, but very, very unlikely in those cases. Would would you say that's your experience as well? Yeah. At least in terms of if you do actually end up drawing, it's probably going to be one of those yeah. three? Well, especially, yeah, must be, yeah, must be true. They turn out to be, and this is, so again, this is going to kind of puzzle people, I think, a little bit, but I, I know what you're saying, Ben. Um, it's, my experience would be I read the argument and I see that it has these conditions, uh, conditional statements, but mm -hmm. I'm having a hard time putting it together in my head. I might draw a little condi quick conditional diagram to link together yep. the premises and you know figure out if they you know where's the conclusion if there is one and try to kind of figure out the way the argument works. And then when I read the question stem, yeah, it turns out frequently to be a must be true question or it turns out to be a sufficient assumption question. Or it could mm -hmm. turn out to be, yeah, a parallel reasoning question. Yeah. But I think what people do, they do it exactly wrong. They do it exactly backward where they're just like, oh, this is a parallel reasoning question, so I'm going to diagram it. That's not the best way to do this. And you can save yourself a lot of time by not diagramming. Some of my best students, in fact, I have a tutoring student today. She's <clears throat> really doing very well, like mid-170s well. But when I first started working with her, I would look at her section and she had diagrams on so many questions. And I'm just, you know, looking at that going, why, why did you do this? And she's, mm -hmm. she's doing it because she thinks she's supposed to. Yeah. But diagramming, you need to think of it as this is a tool that I will use if necessary. Yeah. But I'm not getting that tool. That tool is a dangerous tool to use. Right. Yeah. Every time you start diagramming, it's so easy to mess it up. It's you're you're putting this abstraction into it, right? You're abbreviating things and you're using logical symbols, and it can be really easy to just forget to negate something or forget what something stands for or diagram a premise backward or a million other mistakes you can make when mm -hmm. when you start diagramming. So, you know, if you're starting with that, I think you're actually causing yourself problems. And instead, it should be like oh, this one I really can't put it together without the diagram, so I'll use the diagram. Yeah, and I think what happens in practice is that you try as hard as you can to understand the passage, and maybe when you're starting out, there are more questions that you 
don't feel like you can understand intuitively, even though you're trying. But that trying part is what's really important here is that you try. And um, maybe when the section is over and your time is up, maybe you go back and you try to understand it intuitively again, but then you also draw it uh, so you can see how the argument is laid out so that your intuitive understanding of it increases. So you may need to do more of that drawing usually after the section is over, but more of that drawing up front. But the more you practice that, the less you have to do it. It's like you start seeing these relationships in your head, and so then you don't need to draw, which is why we almost draw never or just one or two questions. I would encourage beginning and intermediate students to never probably diagram um, during the actual time section. What do you think yeah. about that? I mean, because yeah. you know, I say it a lot. Like, if you never diagrammed, I think you're at most costing yourself like one question. Yeah. And so, but for beginning and intermediate students, if they're trying to diagram while the 35 minutes is ticking, I think you're taking a lot of time and you're frankly just, you're not good enough at the test to do that kind of analysis. Mm-hmm. Like, you're going to fuck it up just as often as you're going to get it right. Yeah. And so I think you'd be better off. It's the difference between a tool to learn and understand Mm -hmm. and a tool that actually should be used in the moment to to play the game. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like a drill. I don't know. I'm trying to think of like a sports analogy, but it's like a, a drill that, that is good in practice, but that probably shouldn't be used during the game. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, I think it is. It does make a lot of sense. And I think that it's interesting because after the game and when you're trying to practice and understand, a lot of people will just <clears throat> revert to diagramming. Like they're they're not really trying to understand the passage. The whole point of diagramming is to increase your understanding of what you read. So you can see, oh, I see right. now how that's a necessary condition versus a sufficient condition. And so by going back and forth between the drawing and then really trying to understand what the sentence is saying, you actually end up impro- in improving your understanding. The other thing is that sometimes people will diagram the when this is after the test, so they they um, they diagram the in, the initial question, and then maybe let's say it's a parallel reasoning question, and then they'll diagram the correct answer, and they'll say, "Oh, okay, I see how they're parallel. I'm done." And it's sort of like, why don't you diagram the other answer choices as well? Because you need to see how they don't match up, and this is great practice. And so, if you are gonna <laughs> learn how to diagram when necessary, take advantage of every opportunity you have to see how only if is introducing the necessary condition rather than the sufficient condition. You have to become very familiar with all the rules once you do start diagramming anything. Otherwise, like you said, you're going to flip things around. And since you don't really intuitively understand what's going on, it's just going to be wrong and you're going to have no clue Yeah. why it's wrong. Yeah. Yeah, so it it can be a powerful tool for teaching, but I actually think that it ends up being a flaw in how most LSAT teaching works, right? Most of the, I think the big prep companies and and most of the books that are out there, they're, it's well-meaning because they're trying to, they're trying to demonstrate to you, hey, here's how the logic works. Mm -hmm. And so they're going to show you this diagram, Mm -hmm. but 
nobody who's actually good at the test would really be doing that kind of stuff in order to solve it. Instead, they would just be reading the argument and understanding and seeing the way the pieces work and answering the question. Like yeah. 24 out of 25 times. Yeah. And I think that that message gets lost. So, you know, to just make it more clear, if you, as a listener, if you never ever diagram, I think you can still score like 175. Yeah. I don't, I don't think diagramming is even close to a necessary technique for the test. And that's weird because most LSAT lessons, most courses, most books are going to be pretty heavy on, on showing you these diagrams. I have a book that talks a lot about conditional statements. I told you about it before. And one thing that I do in that book is I give like, I don't even know how many sentences there are. It's probably like a hundred. But what they have to do is they have to take the sentence and then in their head convert it into an if-then sentence mainly to understand it. Because sometimes people will read things, right? Like you say, hey, the only way to to win the lottery is to buy a ticket. And if I ask someone, hey, what's the necess- what what's required? What's necessary? And sometimes people intuitively know right away, oh, uh, well, I have to buy a ticket. That's required. But sometimes people hear that sentence and they say, wait, the only way to win the lottery is to buy a ticket? Well, then the necessary condition is winning the lottery or something like, you know, intuitively for whatever reason, they can't recognize what is necessary and what is sufficient. And some of that might come. Yeah. Well, I'm just going to say, sorry to interrupt, but that's like because they don't really understand what sufficient and necessary even are. Yeah. That's part of the problem. And so, but one way to, (laughs) help people understand that is to have them take a sentence and then in their head, we're we're not diagramming, we're just converting that into if-then so that you can start to see the association. Because I think one thing that helps me as I go through the test is I can restate sentences in a lot of different ways without changing the logical meaning. And that Mm -hmm. allows my intuition to better understand what that sentence is saying. Like if I read that and I think, oh, okay, so I need a ticket. Uh, That, I'm not drawing anything, but now I have a very clear understanding of what that sentence was trying to say. And if it was clear from the get-go, then fine. But some of these sentences are not, and we need to be able to translate them into a necessary versus sufficient yeah. idea or an if-then idea, which are which is the same thing. So the more translating you can do, the better you can get sure. at understanding it intuitively. Sure, but the, the thing that you're really going for with that lesson, and it does sound useful, you're not going for pretty pictures and perfectly diagrammed statements. What you're going for is training people on the skill of figuring out what the sufficient condition is, right? It's like, what's the trigger here? Mm-hmm. How does this rule work? What's yeah. the thing that if known will make another thing also known? Yep. So in your lottery ticket example, uh, having a ticket doesn't guarantee anything. Mm-hmm. But if someone won the lottery, then that would be enough to know that they must have had a ticket. So if you win the lottery, that's sufficient for proving that this person had a ticket. Yeah. 
right? And then the other way of seeing that same statement would be if you don't have a ticket, then that's the sufficient condition for knowing that someone can't win the lottery. Mm -hmm. But all of that has, you know, nothing to do with like actually drawing a diagram. Uh, Yeah, to some extent, although I feel like the icing on the cake there is once you do understand it, then you should be able to easily draw it. And the drawing is an easy way to assess whether people get the flow of the logic, right? So in the book, I say, okay, now you know it. What is it? And if they draw it backward, then it's like, um, maybe you didn't know or maybe you don't understand what an if-then statement drawing means, right? And so I think in some ways it's a good way of assessing people's understanding of did they take this all the way and fully grasp the sufficient and necessary yeah. conditions? But it's also possible that they completely grasp the condition. They just don't understand the diagramming tool, right? They just don't understand that teaching tool or that, that diagramming tool. And it's, it's actually kind of okay if they don't, right? I mean, I would prefer that they do know how to do that. Yeah, yeah. And there are certainly times, you know, there's logic games where they've got they've got conditional rules that link together. Mm-hmm. And in those games, I mean, I think you, you pretty much do have to be making an if-then diagram and do the contrapositive sometimes and link the rules together. And that's all very, very useful in that context. Um, even possibly necessary in the logic mm-hmm. games context. Mm-hmm. But if Alex asking about logical reasoning, um, yeah, I might just say, hmm, how about your plan is you're never going to diagram on a logical reasoning no matter what. Yeah. You know, unless you're at 170 and you, you need one more point or something. Yeah. I guess I have <clears throat> more faith in practicing that. I, I feel like the visualization can also be a way of understanding it. But I think it's all you have to keep it in the context of trying to understand it intuitively. Yeah. In most cases, when people are diagramming, they're just shutting down. We agree that this is a tool for understanding and it should be helping you to understand. Otherwise, you should not be doing it. Yeah. Okay, cool. So anything else for Alec? No, I think that's good. Okay. So the next one is this uh, white lie addendum. Uh, I actually haven't read this yet. I just kind of scanned over it. Will you read it? Yeah. Uh, it says, hey guys, big fan of the podcast. I was wondering if y'all could offer some guidance. It says, so I signed up for the LSAT like two years ago, but I just forgot to cancel it. I was super unprepared. I know it's silly. So I unknowingly took an absence. I planned on explaining this in an addendum saying it showed my interest in pursuing law but I was involved in an accident that morning that prevented me from showing up. Then waited after, well, then I waited until, the story is going to be, then I waited until after graduation to take the test. What are your thoughts on white lies for these types of scenarios? Uh, now that you just read that, my reaction to this is that the downsides are potentially enormous and the upsides are very minimal. Practically yeah. nothing. Yeah, I think it's like lying in general. It's <laughs> it's just, you know, you're, if you're going to start down this road of these little white lies and just, you know, end up with this whole, you just end up in the long run with this big web of lies and deceit that follow you around. And 
you can't remember which lies you told to which people. And I get it, you know, like, hey, it was this stupid thing. It might look bad on my record. So what's the harm if I just say I got in an accident? But I feel like I feel like it's totally unnecessary. I, I, I don't like that plan. Yeah, I think one absence is not a big deal. It's going to be pretty quickly looked over and forgotten. But if, if you lie and somehow they find out about this, you could go to law school, pay for law school, take the bar, and then end up not being eligible to practice law based on a lie in your application. I don't mean I don't know how serious uh, bars take this, but they do ask for pretty much everything. I don't think they'd be likely to find out, but you know, if it ever came up, it would just be a huge potential <laughs> liability. Whereas the benefit seems pretty negligible not none at all i don't think there's any benefit i don't think they're gonna care about one absence from long ago it's just an a it's just one letter a get a good score (laughs) and then they're gonna be like great this person's got a great score they apparently didn't show up for the test who knows maybe they maybe you got sick and you just didn't decide to write an addendum they're not gonna care yeah i mean if they ask you to explain it i would explain it Yep. And some of the applications might have a, a box that says, hey, if you have any absences or withdrawals or, oh, sorry, not withdrawals because withdrawals don't show up. But if you have any absences or cancellations on your record, we want to know, we want to know what happened. Or if you have lower scores on your record, we want to know what happened. And I don't know why you can't just tell them the truth, mm-hmm. especially if you do it in a professional, lawyerly kind of a way. Why not use it as an opportunity to show a bit of humility? You know, I'm talking about two sentences. Mm -hmm. You know, the reason I took this uh, absence on such and such date was entirely my fault. I thought I, I, I didn't realize that I was registered. You know, it was irresponsible of me. And this is not the type of thing that you can expect from me as a student. I don't even know if I'd go that far. I think I would just say I signed up and forgot to cancel. I, I thought I don't know if he if he thought or she thought that she had canceled because if she had, that would be even better. I don't know. I don't. This isn't Alec, right? This is just some. No, this is this is somebody else, and I I, I redacted the name because we certainly don't want to be blasting this name out there. Yeah. After but, they suggested that they were going to lie to the law school. <laughs> <laughs> if this person thought that they had canceled, then I think that's that would be totally legit. Just say, hey, I thought I had canceled, but I hadn't, so it showed up as an absence. Oops. Yeah. Yeah. I realized I was unprepared. I decided not to take the test. I thought I had canceled, but I, but I didn't. Oops. Yeah. I mean, I, it, right. I, I just don't, don't write oops, by the way. We're, no, don't, don't, don't write take oops. us literally. <laughs> yeah. And just generally don't editorialize very much at all. You know, Stick let to the, the facts, facts speak for yeah. themselves. And this is not a disaster. This is, this is nothing. No. Yeah. But I, I would avoid the lie because, yeah, you know, you're in an interview or something and they mention <laughs> to you, 
oh, you're in an accident? I see. I hope you're okay. What, what, what happened? Yeah. And you're like, uh, oh, just a shark attack, later. shark attack me <laughs> on the way, on the way to the test. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Oh man. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, thank you. Redacted. Redacted also said in the email, also, how good was Rogue One? I thought it was way better than The Force Awakens. And yeah, I, I completely agree with that. Yeah. Rogue One. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. All right. So the June 2007 LSAT, if uh, you don't have that, you can just search for that on the internet. It's on LSAC.org. Uh, just Google it, though. And we are in section three, question 14. Feel free to follow along. Commentator. Oof. This looks like a long passage. Do you want to read it? Sure, yeah. Uh, by the way, these long passages are, uh, it's almost guaranteed that I'm not going to diagram this one. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's usually the short, very formulaic um, passages, right? For, yeah, the ones that are, you know, every brick house has a front yard, every house with a front yard has a chimney, mm-hmm. or I don't mm-hmm. know, whatever, like that type of thing. And where it's usually pretty direct obvious um it's obvious that they're using conditional reasoning and it's obvious that those conditions probably link to each other in some way Mm -hmm. but but the argument itself would be like one third of the length of this uh commentator's argument yep i I don't think i'm ever diagramming something that's this long yeah Um, okay so here we go commentator says in academic scholarship sources are always cited and methodology and theoretical assumptions are set out so as to allow critical study, replication, and expansion of scholarship. I'd probably pause there. That's four lines, a lot of words, a lot going on there. So I'd probably just, you know, take a, another look before I move on to make sure I understand what's going on. Yep. I think the, what we have here is I guess it's two necessary conditions for academic scholarship, or that's one way to look at it. That if you're doing academic scholarship, you're going to do a couple things. One, you're always going to cite your sources. Mm-hmm. Two, your methodology and assumptions are always going to be set out. Yep. And then there's a reason. Why do we do this? Why do we cite our sources? Why do we set out our methodology and our theoretical assumptions? Why do we do that? Well, we want to allow critical study, replication, and expansion of scholarship. Which is a classic uh, LSAT abstraction using replication, expansion, trying to hide what's happening, right? Instead of saying to replicate or expand scholarship. Uh, A lot of ION words you can translate back into verbs and make more sense of them. One reaction I had to this right when you started reading, it said, in academic scholarship, sources are always cited. And this is probably going to be a premise. And so we'll just accept it as true. But my mm-hmm. immediate gut reaction to that that claim right there was like, really? Yeah, except when they're not. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure they are the vast majority of time if you're a true academic. But I could certainly see cases where some idiot was just like, hmm. This is what I think, and didn't cite any sources, uh, and maybe didn't set out the methodology or the theoretical assumptions. I mean, that seems like an even harder task. So, sure, I'm sort of accepting this as true because I'm guessing that's probably going to be a premise, but I'm also just thinking like, okay, bud, whatever. 
Yeah, yeah. Because it's a premise, we we probably are going to say, oh, okay, I see what you're saying. You know, maybe you're talking about um, improper academic scholarship. Yeah. Or theoretical well, the academic be. scholarship. Right. Yeah. Okay. I mean, again, I'm not going to put a whole lot of weight on it, but I think you should be reading these sentences and having some sort of opinion about them. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. If you saw that, if you go, well, I mean, not all was in practice, right? But then you also go, oh, but this is probably a premise, so we can probably let that go. Yeah. That's still, yeah, that's definitely doing it right. You want to be critical here. And sensitive to what they're saying, right? Always is a really strong word. Okay. Okay, it goes on. So, and you know, and, and you boil that whole four lines down into, hey, if you're going to do academic scholarship, you got to cite your sources and make your methodology and assumptions explicit. Mm-hmm. Why? Well, so that other people can replicate and understand what you're doing. Yep. No big deal. Okay, got it. And most, I think a lot of students would just have sort of blasted through that sentence mm-hmm. and gone like, oh, uh, a lot of words here. Uh, and like, just, but I got to hurry. So I'm going to just keep reading. But that's yep. not what we would do. We would sit with it for a second. You sit with it for a second, and you realize it's not even that big of a deal. Mm-hmm. Okay. In open source software, the code in which the program is written can be viewed and modified by individual users for their purposes without getting permission from the producer or paying a fee. Whoa. Yeah. As soon as it said in open source software, I was like, uh, okay, are we going to make some sort of comparison? Between yeah, the two? I thought, exactly. Yeah, I thought it was going to be an analogy where mm-hmm. they were going to say in open source software, you also have to source, you know, cite your sources and show yeah. your methodology and theoretical assumptions. But instead, this just says in open source software, which is a totally different thing from academic scholarship, mm-hmm. the code in which the program is written can be viewed and modified by individual users without getting permission or paying a fee. I guess there's maybe a similarity there that you can view the code. Yeah, I wonder if this is going to talk about how they're similar or how they're different. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do see one similarity there already, which is that if in academic scholarship, you're going to cite your sources and show Mm -hmm. your methodology and show Mm -hmm. your assumptions, Mm -hmm. that's an awful lot like a user being able to view the code of open source software. Yep, and okay. allowing that new person to replicate and expand the code just like they would the scholarship. Oh, yeah, expansion of scholarship. And that's a lot like modifying this code. Viewing the code, modifying the code for your own purposes, that's similar to expansion of scholarship. Okay, mm-hmm. cool. Yeah, so we're, again, you know, sit with it for a second, and then you start to sort of see how the how these two things connect to each other. Yep. All right. In contrast, oh, okay, so here's a difference now, mm-hmm. or something different, something new and different is coming. In contrast, the code of proprietary software is kept secret, and modifications can be made only by the producer for a fee. Hmm. So I guess that would be sort of different than, it, that is disanalogous from the academic scholarship. Mm-hmm. because I can't imagine a professor being like, oh, no, 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 this is a secret study. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you who my sources are. I'm not going to tell you how I did the study, and I'm not going to tell you well, any of my assumptions unless you pay me. That's like Scientology is what that is. Yeah. <laughs> right? Okay. Yeah, Scientology, or I'm thinking right now, like they didn't talk about it, but maybe pro- 
proprietary scholarship, right? Like, or you could have people researching in labs for companies and they right. probably would do that exactly. But anyway. yeah, of course. Yeah. Okay. This shows now that's a big red flag to me. Yep. How come? Cause what they're about to assert is supposedly proven by the three sentences that they've said so far. Yeah. Shows on the LSAT means proves, and it's almost always bullshit. They almost always have not proven their conclusion. So this is going to be the conclusion, and they're saying, yeah, based on the three sentences above, here's, here's what we know for sure, mm-hmm. which is that open source software better matches the values embodied in academic scholarship that part I, I can't really quibble with. I mean, we, I can see why this is a, I can see the similarity between open source software and academic scholarship, right? Yeah. And I can see how it's different with proprietary software. I can see how that's different in some ways. My concern is like, what are all the values embodied yeah. in academic scholarship? We don't know right. about that, right? But anyway, yeah. Right. But it, it, that's not the point anyway, because it's going to go on here, right? Mm-hmm. And... Since scholarship is central to the mission of universities, that's a premise that's nested within the conclusion. Mm-hmm. This is another new premise that we have to accept. Scholarship is central to the mission of universities. It says, since scholarship is central to the mission of universities, universities should use only open source <laughs> software. Oh my gosh. That came out of nowhere. Yeah, I mean, now, when you say it came out of nowhere... Well, you understand, you get their point. Yeah. Right? We get it. We get it. We, you've given us this similarity between open source and academic scholarship. You've shown us a dissimilarity between proprietary software and academic scholarship. You have told us that academic scholarship is you know, central to the mission of universities. Okay, fine. Yeah, we get that. And then you kind of leap to this big conclusion of, therefore, universities should use only open source software. Well, <clears throat> here's the reason I say it came out of nowhere. There's still an idea in there that did come out of nowhere, I feel like. That you should always match values or something like that? Well, the should I uh, take issue with, obviously, but also the use. Like, what sort of software you use that somehow needs to match the values? Yeah, that's a good point. So, like, I use an automated registration system for my university. Mm-hmm. And all I use it for is to just register people for the classes and, you know, provide a course roster to the teacher. Mm -hmm. Why would that software need to be open source software? What does that have to do with my academic mission? Yes, I get it that open source software is more similar to academic scholarship. And yes, I get it that academic scholarship is important, Mm -hmm. but... How does it impact my academic scholarship if I decide to use a proprietary code? I, you know, I buy some um, registration software from Microsoft or whatever. 
Yeah. And then it's not open source. They're not giving away that code. They're not letting people modify that code. But if it's the best uh, or cheapest or most user-friendly, whatever, it's just it's the software that I want to use to run my course registrations. Why the hell does that, how does that impact my academic mission? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. So what's this argument assuming? It's, it's like assuming that I always have to use things that match things that are important to me match the values of things that are important to me right like if the values of academic scholarship include this openness then i also have to have open everything else yeah and probably should only admit students who are open source (laughs) open source or yeah or like i should to this idea i shouldn't i shouldn't have locks on my doors of my (laughs) campus buildings right yeah like I, this is, is it's weird yeah i want to allow critical study replication and expansion of 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 scholarship so i have to have open doors open classes free open everything all the time yeah yeah okay okay so i think now we we see the sort of critical flaw or the the critical missing piece in the argument right mm-hmm All right, got it. I I think we can probably answer. The question says, the commentator's reasoning most closely conforms to which one of the following principles? Um, What type of question is that? I tend to look at this as a must-be-true question. Totally. But at the same time, I do take note of one thing, and that is... These closely conforms questions tend to fall into two categories. They either talk about uh, the passage itself is either an argument or it's what they call a situation, which is just a set of facts. And I notice that when it's an argument, such as we just saw, they'll say something like this in the question. They'll say the commentator's reasoning or the commentator's argument or something along those lines, most closely conforms to which one of the following principles. And when there is an argument, it seems like the thing that must be true is usually the assumption that the argument is making. In other words, the argument is conforming to some sort of, quote, principle, which yeah. is just the assumption that, yeah. I mean, has to be made pretty much. It's almost like a necessary, it's a necessary assumption. Yep, necessary assumption questions are very similar to must be true questions. And so I think if we see this as a must be true slash they're probably probing for the necessary assumption, mm-hmm. I think we're going to be in really good shape. Yep. Okay, cool. I guess we could predict it. Yeah. Since we were already complaining, right? We're, we're bitching about the, the, the leap, right? The gap kind of in this argument. Yeah. So if we were going to predict it, since it's a must be true and since it's a necessary assumption, what do you think? Does that mean we're going to phrase our prediction like really strongly or weakly? I think it's going to be pretty weak and pretty close. I mean, that's why they're saying closely conforms to the language of the passage. So my guess is it's going to talk specifically about something along the lines if something matches your if something is important to you then 
you should use things that conform with those values or something along those lines. I think it's yep. going to be pretty narrow, though, and focused on the language that they used in the passage. Yeah, something like um, if openness is important to one of your missions, mm -hmm. then you should strive for openness in at least some other things that you do. Yeah. And one thing both of us said, just to make it explicit, is we both used should in our assumption because the premises never talked about what you should or shouldn't do. And then the yeah. conclusion did, which you were emphasizing when you read it earlier. But should is a, you know, I don't do any diagramming, highlighting, underlining, anything like that on the logical reasoning. Yeah. But should, if I was going to just underline ever one word, I think should might be that one. Sure. Because it's such a big, it's just a, it's a shift, right? It's mm -hmm. a, it goes from the realm of talking about what is true or talking about what is, you know, here, here are the premises of my argument, here's the situation, to you should therefore do this. Yep. And it's like, whoa, hold on a second. Okay. Okay, yeah, so answer A. It says, whatever software tools are most advanced... I almost stopped reading it right now. <sighs> yeah. Whatever software tools are most advanced and can achieve the goals of academic scholarship are the ones that should alone be used in universities. Never talked about what's most advanced. If anything, it's the opposite of what the commentator was saying, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the commentator was saying we, you should use open. You need to be open. You need to match your values and be open. Mm -hmm. That has nothing to do with most advanced and can achieve the goal. I don't know. Yeah. yeah, the most advanced part is just conclusively wrong. Yep. Two words can make an answer choice wrong. So the rest of A, you know, has a lot of words that might be attractive to people. Mm. Yeah. Like we're achieving the goals of academic scholarship and those alone are the ones that we should use. It has should, it has only, yeah. it has something about the goals of academic scholarship. I could see people just being like, yeah, it's got all this good stuff in it. Okay, yeah. yeah, but it also has whatever tools are most advanced, which is absolutely not what the commentator was talking about and which conclusively makes A wrong. Mm -hmm. It's the like one bad apple ruining the whole barrel, right? Yep. Okay. B. Universities should use the type of software technology that is least expensive, comma, <laughs> I don't care what the rest of that answer choice says. Yeah. <laughs> That's bad. We never talk yep. about price. That's another just rotten apple there at the beginning of B, and that makes it, and there's no way they can recover that. There's no way that can turn into the correct answer. I think uh, people would be tempted by this because open source software is presumably free. Oh, yeah. And they said something about not charging, yeah, charging a fee for the, yeah, yeah, I see. Uh-huh. Yeah. But that's not their point. Their, their point is not use the type of software that is least expensive. Yeah. If you weren't sure, you could go on. Because the rest of that answer says as long as that type of software is adequate for the purposes of academic scholarship. We just didn't even talk about that either. Yeah. Now that I read the whole thing, it's like, okay, if C, D, and E are all horrible, I suppose I could come back to that. But at least expensive makes me really nervous there. Yeah. 
Okay. Because, I mean, what if uh, Microsoft decides to give you its proprietary software for free? Sure. What if Microsoft decides to pay your university to use its proprietary software? Yeah. Because it'll get all the kids addicted. Um, yeah, that's it, the answer is not going to be B. C. Universities should choose the type of software technology that best matches the values embodied in the activities that are central to the mission of universities. Did the argument mention an activity that is central to the mission of universities? Yeah. Yeah, that was uh, academic scholarship. Yeah. And it totally talked about the values embodied in academic scholarship. Yeah. And then it totally told us that open source software best matches uh, those values. Yeah. So the answer is going to be C. Yeah, or at least should be kept open, right? Yeah. D says, the form of software technology that best matches the values embodied in the activities that are central to the mission of universities is the form of software technology that is most efficient for universities to use. No, 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 no. It just said they should only use open source software. They didn't say it was the most efficient or anything along those lines. So this is going too far. Yeah, D doesn't, also D doesn't have a should in it, right? It's yeah. not prescriptive. It's only telling you, oh, well, this would be the most efficient. But just because it's the most efficient doesn't mean we have to use it. C is a much better fit here. Yep. E, a university should not pursue any activity that would block the achievement of the goals of academic scholarship at that university. This is uh, actually going against exactly what our complaint was, right? Our complaint was, why should you use only open source software? How does that get in the way of academic scholarship, which is central right. to their mission? And we didn't see a way that it would necessarily. And so even if you accept E is true, it's not necessarily referring to using something other than open source software. Yeah, we don't know that it would block our academic scholarship if we used that proprietary registration software. Yeah. Cool, so the answer is C. Anything else you need to add, Ben? No, um, thanks for listening as always. You can always email us your questions at help at thinkinglsat.com or tweet us at thinkinglsat or Nathan at nfox or me at strategy prep. I think that's it, right? Yeah, hope you're having a happy holiday and uh, we will be back to talk to you again soon. Thanks. All right, yeah, see ya.